So hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Ranjit Deshpande. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. James A. Russell, MD, about the article, The Septic Shock 3.0 Definition and Trials, A Vasopressin and Septic Shock Trial Experience, published in the June issue of Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Russell is the Professor of Medicine at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada. He's also the Principal Investigator at the Center for Heart and Lung Innovations at the St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, Canada. You know, you had two big questions that you wanted to address with this article after the new uh, sepsis guidelines came out. Uh, you wanted to look at the 28-day mortality and uh, uh, 90-day mortality in these in septic shock patients on based on the new guidelines. And you wanted to see if there was any difference between the norepinephrine group and the vasopressin group. You also wanted to see if there was any difference in uh, plasma cytokine levels in vasopressin in patients who had uh, lactates less than two and more than two, uh, more than two, is that correct? Yes, that's right. Okay. Would you have any disclosures uh, to share, Dr. Russell? Um, I do have some disclosures. I do consulting work for some companies in the sepsis space, including uh, in the past, Cubist Pharmaceuticals, Leading Biosciences, Faring Pharmaceuticals, Griffles, La Jolla, Cytobale, Asahi Kasai, and Scion Therapeutics. None of these are working on vasopressin, although Faring, I should note, is developing celepressin in septic shock, and celepressin is a pure E1A agonist, and I've been a consultant to Faring for some years now. Okay, thank you. So what made you come up with this study? What, what is the driving force behind it, or how did you go about, you know, even with these questions? Well, it's very interesting. The new septic shock definition, which was published in JAMA and uh, had some backup articles showing the data that drove these evidence-based definitions, were very intriguing to me for several reasons. First, it was a data-driven definition, which I really liked, as opposed to pure expert consensus. Uh, but second, what surprised me was when I do rounds in the ICU, and we have patients on vasopressors. We usually uh, make a diagnosis if the patient got on vasopressors for sepsis, not responding to fluids, that the patient's in septic shock. But the new definition goes further and says that the patient also has to have a lactate greater than two. Now, we do know that a lactate increases the risk of death, and they nicely show in these huge databases just that, that the higher the lactate, the higher the risk of death. So we had been doing a lot of work on septic shock for many years, and it kind of shook me. It shook me for teaching, and it shook me for research to say, well, if we need to apply this definition clinically and in research, I wonder what the impact is on trials that have been completed. And I was the principal investigator of the so-called VAST trial, the vasopressin and septic shock trial, and so we had this opportunity to explore what's the impact of this new definition on the relationship or the comparison of vasopressin versus norepinephrine and septic shock. So we jumped right into our database and basically did the study. Excellent, excellent. And uh, how did you decide on uh, the, the dose of 0.03 versus using 0.04 for vasopressin? And what is your uh, thought behind looking at 39 cytokines 
versus any other uh, different number of cytokines for this particular study? Well, two great questions. When we designed this study some years ago, we were trying to balance from the literature and from our own previous studies the right dose of vasopressin that gives you a shot at efficacy but is still safe. And at that time, the highest doses that were reported in the literature in many studies and that we had used in our previous proof-of-concept trial and our open-label trials was around 0.03 to 0.04. And it was a somewhat arbitrary decision to err on the side of safety and use a peak dose of 0.03. And uh, one could have used a dose of 0.04, but we had to make a decision and chose 0.03. Now, the cytokines are an interesting story. We've been very interested in the immune and inflammatory response in septic shock. And we had done some literature reviews and wrote a review article published in the Journal of Innate Immunity showing some very interesting effects of vasopressin on immunity. Now, most of us in critical care think of vasopressin as a hormone that raises blood pressure that we use in septic shock. And... We don't really think of it as an immune-modulating hormone. So we used the literature and we used our own knowledge of inflammatory cytokines and then collaborated with the Stanford University Medical Center Human Immune Monitoring Laboratory who did our assays for us. And that's how we chose the 39 cytokines. They're a mixture of pro- and anti-inflammatory cytokines, hemokines, and growth factors. And it would include many of the usual suspects like TNF, IL-1, IL-6, IL-8, IL-10 that critical care physicians read about all the time. Okay, great. Excellent. And then you moved on. There's something something that really caught my eye in this study. And it was about how patients behave differently if their lactates are less than two and if they're more than two especially, you know, um, the use of, with the use of vasopressin. Why do you think that's happening, or why? what's your idea behind that? Well, it's very intriguing to me, too, and it goes against what some of the teaching has been and how many of us thought that vasopressin should be used. When we started this study, people had discovered, and particularly Don Landry at Columbia had discovered, that there's a vasopressin deficiency in septic shock, and that One can increase blood pressure and lower norepinephrine requirements if you add a vasopressin infusion to patients already on norepinephrine. And so many of us were using vasopressin kind of as a rescue drug in patients who were not responding to fairly high doses of norepinephrine. But our prior studies had indicated that the vasopressin deficiency occurs in almost everybody in septic shock. And so we wondered whether the severity of shock might influence the response to vasopressin. And so we had a confluence of one new development, the septic shock definition, which said this lactate had to be greater than two. And then this knowledge that vasopressin has been used in more severe shock, but it might be effective in earlier shock. And like you said, the result was really quite stunning. Taylor Thompson wrote an editorial uh, in the same issue in Critical Care Medicine really highlighting this. And what we found was that the vasopressin signal was completely in the patients who had vasopressors and a lactate less than two. And what that meant was vasopressin lowered the mortality compared to norepinephrine by about 10%, both at 28 and 90 days, but only in those patients who had a lactate less than two. 
In the patients who meet the septic shock 3.0 definition on vasopressors and a lactate greater than 2, there was no signal whatsoever. The mortality rates were nearly identical. And so it really opened my eyes and influenced me. We had had previous hints about this in our original New England Journal publication because we found a group of less severe shock, but that was defined by a norepinephrine dose of 15 or less mics per minute. And so what it really says to me, Ranjit, is if there's a benefit of vasopressin, I think you need to go earlier. I think you need to go before the lactate's really high. I think you need to go before the norepinephrine dose is very high. And I think that's because that's a stage when there's less of a profound inflammatory response and the patients are probably more reversible in terms of the organ dysfunction that complicates septic shock. So the short answer to summarize is vasopressin in our trial, the VAS trial, appears to be most effective in the patients who are less ill, as defined by a lactate less than 2 or a norepinephrine level, infusion level less than 15. Hmm, interesting. This was, this was extremely, extremely intriguing for me. So with this, the other question that comes to my mind is, if you were to start vasopressin early on, would you titrate this drug up? So that's another interesting question. We had in the past run protocols where we essentially add the vasopressin at 0 0.01, 0.02, and then 0.03, and just leave it there. And we only titrate the norepinephrine. And once the norepinephrine is off, we wait some 8 to 12 hours, and then we wean down from 0.03 to 0.02 to 0.01, the vasopressin. And so you're right, we've thought of this as a hormone replacement therapy, that once you've got the patient on that vasopressin, we just leave that at a fixed dose. Now it simplifies management for the nurses and the physicians to only titrate the norepinephrine. And so that's another advantage of only titrating the norepinephrine once the patient is on the vasopressin. But I think there's some rationale for also titrating the vasopressin. We do that a little bit in our own ICU, although the practice is more often still to get the patient up to 0.03 units per minute and leave them there and then titrate only the norepinephrine. But I think there is a rationale for considering titration of the vasopressin. Now, unfortunately, vasopressin levels, which we measured in VAST, uh, required a radioimmunoassay, and it's somewhat difficult. And most clinical labs, certainly our clinical lab, doesn't have vasopressin levels, and that would be a nice way to be able to decide how to titrate the vasopressin against the vasopressin level. Interesting. That would be that would be an excellent study for someone who's interested in doing it and has the funds uh, to do it. So, um, moving on, what would you want to tell the audience that listening that is listening to this podcast about the use of vasopressin? So, would your suggestion be? Any patient who comes in septic shock, uh, you know, start vasopressin before the norepinephrine or do what you do, but also start vasopressin along with whatever you're doing. Well, I think now until we see more evidence of vasopressin as the first drug, uh, I believe still the guidelines recommend and it's reasonable to start with norepinephrine because some patients will respond very quickly to a low dose. So we've given them vasopressors at low dose with fluids, maybe 5 to 10 mics of norepinephrine, 
and they seem to stabilize and maybe only need the norepinephrine for a few hours, those patients probably didn't have a vasopressin deficiency and may not need vasopressin. I would think that if you have vasopressin that's running up in the range of 10 to 12 and the lactate is still less than 2, those are the patients, and that could be within the first hour. You don't have to wait hours. I think this could easily be done within the first hour because we turn around lactate levels so quickly now, one could add vasopressin. Now, the other approach that I know pilot studies have been done to start norepinephrine and vasopressin concurrently, and some of my colleagues in our ICU at St. Paul's Hospital will do that, and their impression is that's a superior approach, although I think the data on that is really not complete yet. But I think it's a reasonable approach where I think I'm a little nervous yet until we see more data and some good clinical studies on safety is starting with vasopressin alone on top of fluids before giving any norepinephrine. But I can easily see the day that we might see some studies come out that show that that's safe, might be effective. I think that would be a nice future trial is a randomized controlled double-blind trial of vasopressin as the first drug versus norepinephrine as the first drug, because then we would really know that the vasopressin got started early when the patient isn't in severe, profound septic shock. So I think if anyone has funds for me to run that trial, we'd love to do that one. <laughs> Hopefully the audience is listening to that. And, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> so this, is definitely, this is definitely interesting stuff. What, what kind of studies do you see coming out of this, from this new sepsis sepsis 3.0 definition? Well, I think it's going to be very interesting. The other point that I'd like to make that we haven't covered is that, as one expects, when we cut the patients according to lactate, if one were to run a new trial now, according to the new sepsis 3.0 definition in septic shock, one needs a patient on vasopressors and a lactate greater than two. Well, when we looked at the VAST data, as expected, that knocked down the sample size by about 40%. So we would take longer, more centers, and possibly need more money to run septic shock trials using the new definition because there's an AND statement there. You need vasopressors and a lactate greater than 2. The second effect is that that increases the baseline mortality. In our hands, it showed an increase in mortality of about 10%. Now, that could be exactly what you're looking for, but for the statisticians that help us design trials and do these sample size and power calculations, they need to know that because with a higher mortality rate and an estimate of the absolute risk reduction we're looking for, that has a big effect on the power and the sample size. So we discussed that in some detail in the article. It's a little bit technical, but I think for clinicians, what they might see now is that if new trials start to use the new definition, one, remember that that's a patient set that has a slightly higher lactate, has a slightly higher mortality, and so it's going to be a little more difficult to interpret those trials compared to older trials like VAST or the norepinephrine versus dopamine or previous trials of epinephrine versus norepinephrine plus dobutamine. So I think the trials are a little bit harder to run. They're going to have a higher lactate, a sicker population. But that's possibly what we need to do uh, for new drugs because uh, maybe only the more severe patients respond. Uh, 
another point Dr. Thompson raises is in his editorial, and I've noticed in the literature, is vasopressin isn't the only intervention that works better in less severe shock. There's some data that's just come out in recent publications showing that early goal-directed therapy is especially effective in patients in early sepsis and septic shock. And that makes sense, too, because that whole strategy is most effective when you get in early before organ dysfunction becomes quite established. So I think there are two effects of this new definition. One, that will have patients perhaps more severe in septic shock trials, but I don't want us to stop looking at the earlier stage of patients with septic shock on a vasopressor who have a lactate less than two. Now, putting in some humor, what do we call those patients? If you're doing rounds in the ICU and you have a patient on vasopressors, say norepinephrine at 7 mics and a lactate of 1.5, theoretically, we don't call that patient septic shock anymore. So I've challenged some of the authors of the septic shock definition paper and said, what do we call that? And they've said, well, maybe we call that pre-shock. So I'm not sure what that means, but I think it's important for clinicians and readers of the literature to now carefully look at the inclusion criteria of studies in the future because... It is critical to know whether they're using this new definition or a more broad definition of patients just on vasopressors. Well, that was, that was a lot of uh, information for people interested in doing studies. So the other question that comes to my mind is all our guidelines are based on all the older trials, you know, the PROMISE trial or the famous Rivers uh, trials. Should we be looking at all those trials in a different perspective now? Well, I think that raises a very good question. The analysis that we did on the VAST study was, you know, fairly simple. We essentially went back to our statisticians, opened the database, ran some uh, analyses that said, what if the patients need, need to meet the new definition because we had the lactate measured at baseline and ran the analysis. Now, it was a little more complex than that. But I would argue that all of these previous studies could go through the same exercise that we did, and we could perhaps even see a, a meta-analysis and a new set of guidelines that say, if you were to go back, now this would be retrospective, but if we went back into those older studies, you could clearly enunciate, just as we did, is there more signal in patients with the new septic shock definition or more signal in the patients with vasopressors and a low lactate? I think that's a great suggestion, Ranjit, and I'd be very curious to see what some of these other interventions do, whether they also depend on the severity of shock like vasopressin does. Right, because that's something that, you know, when we when I teach my residents or fellows in the unit, uh, that's a question that's brought up, and I was presenting your paper to our fellows, and they said, oh, so Dr. Russell and his group looked at their study that they'd done before the new guidelines, should we be looking at these new studies? And I said, that sounds interesting. I'm going to talk to Dr. Russell and see what he has to say. So this is, uh, this is great. I think that's great. Is, hey, is I'll there... give that a bright green light. In fact, I think it's quite possible that some of the leaders, first authors of some of these papers published in New England Journal and JAMA and Critical Care Medicine, etc., maybe they're having the same thought. Maybe they're going through the same exercise. I would hope so because I think it would really help us to understand as you say, the implication of this new definition in terms of both our day-to-day -day practice and, you know, our understanding of new research coming out when it gets published in critical care medicine. We need to understand 
how the definition was applied. Yes, definitely. So are there any take-home points for budding intensivists, new intensivists, and of course, intensivists practicing for a long time um, that you would want to share? Well, I, my take-home point is that I think it's an exciting time to be in critical care, and it's an exciting time to be doing clinical work, to be teaching, to be doing research. I'm encouraged that we're refining our definitions. I don't want people to take away a point that I'm critical of the new definition. I'm not. I think it's a good evolution. I think we need to adjust our practice and understand how the new definition affects us. And I think for the young ones that have a curious mind and are interested in developing new hypotheses, this is very fertile ground. And I think it will have an implication not only on drugs that we're already using, but drugs that are in development, drugs that have been published and possibly coming into our ICU clinically. Uh, we've all read the recent angiotensin II trial on septic shock, which looks very interesting. Uh, and there are other vasopressors being assessed in combination. So uh, it's an exciting time, I think, for the, the new trainees coming up. And I would encourage them to remain curious and critical and either get into the research or be sure to read the research when they're doing their care. Excellent. Thank you. That was basically it. Uh, this, was a, this was great talking to you, Dr. Russell. And I'm looking forward to maybe working with you in the future, meeting you at different meetings and discussing more about your interests in sepsis and its management. Great. Um, well, thank you very much. It's an honor and a privilege to, to do this, and I hope it's helpful for people. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of iCritical Care Podcast. Please check our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I am Dr. Ranjit Deshpande from Yale University. Thank you. Attend the 47th Critical Care Congress to be held February 25th to 28th, 2018 in San Antonio, Texas, USA. The Society's Congress is the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year and features innovative learning experiences that encompass the full range of developments in critical care. Register at www.sccm.org slash congress. Dr. Ranjit Despande. Dr. Ranjit Despande is an intensivist and an anesthesiologist at the Yale New Haven Hospital, YNHH. His interests include organ transplantation and point-of-care ultrasound. He currently is the Director for Transplant Anesthesiology at YNHH. He is actively involved in resident education. Dr. Deshpande grew up in India and graduated from the BJ Medical College in Pune, India. He came to the United States to pursue a residency in anesthesiology at the University of Miami Jackson Hospital, after which he joined the Johns Hopkins University as a fellow in critical care medicine. His interests outside of medicine include spending time with his family, playing tennis, and squash. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.